We're coming to Mark chapter 4. There are thousands of people on the beach. Jesus is sitting in a boat just a few yards out in the water from, from, the, from the beach. He's talking to these tens of thousands of people. He's telling them a story. It is so simple. I don't know if there were small children there on the beach. Almost certainly there were. People of all sorts of backgrounds, folk with very little education, many of them. Every one of them would have understood what Jesus had to say. And yet, frankly, the vast majority of them wouldn't have understood a word. How does that tie up? They would have understood everything, and yet the vast majority would hardly have understood a word. Well, that, that'll become clear, I think, as we go on. So have you got Mark chapter 4 open? Verses 1 to 20, the parable of the sower, the best-known parable of all. It's a parable which calls you and calls me to do four things. The first thing is to think. The Bible's quite a big book. The average Bible's about 1,200 pages or so. Just long enough to get to know really well in a lifetime. Just short enough for, to be manageable. And... Three quarters of your Bible is Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, you have promises and you have pictures and you have predictions. You have a, a whole host of apparatus which is looking forward to four things. The life, the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that Old Testament is looking forward to those things. Then you have a quarter of the Bible, which is New Testament. The New Testament, all of it, is looking back to four things. The life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then looking back to those four things, it builds on them, and what it has to say about the future is all related to that. So the centre of your Bible, the centre of all its thinking, the centre of all its focus, is the life the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what happens if you know very little about his life? Then your Bible, frankly, is very hard to understand. What happens if you don't understand his ministry, his preaching, his teaching? Then the whole of your Bible becomes very difficult to understand. So let's focus on that for a minute. How did Jesus teach? Well, almost always, not always, almost always, he taught through stories. Most of those stories are parables. And we learn in Sunday school, Bible class and wherever else we've been, that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. There are over two dozen parables recorded for us in the New Testament. But only two of them are ever explained to us. The parable of the sower comes three times and it's explained three times. The parable of the wheat and tares comes once and it's explained once. If you can't understand the parable of the sower, how are you going to understand the other parables? That's exactly what is said in our passage. Did you notice that? So we're in Mark chapter 4, come up to verse 10. Hmm. One of those days where the pages are sticking. Here we are. 
Now, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But look at verse 13. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? You can't understand the Bible unless you understand the ministry of Christ. You can't understand the ministry of Christ unless you understand the parables. You can't understand the parables unless you can understand the parable of the sower. Don't you understand this parable? Then how can you understand all the parables? So it's actually very hard, isn't it, for me to overemphasize, to overstress the importance of the parable of the sower. Because if you don't understand this, your, your Bible knowledge, your Bible understanding is going to fall to pieces. Which is one of the main reasons I'm looking at it tonight with you. So it's a parable which is calling us to think. To think about what? Because, look at verse 10. When he was alone, as he withdrew from the crowd for a moment, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Tell us about that parable, Jesus. And then Jesus explained why he taught him parables. He gave a story so that everybody present could understand. But he told it a story so that unless you were really serious about seeking God, you wouldn't actually understand the meaning, the spiritual meaning, the deep meaning, the personal meaning of the parable which he was talking to you about. So the parables were a way for everybody to understand something, but only the spiritual, spiritually serious people would really understand the parable. But what's the parable about? Verse 11, he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. My parables, says Jesus, are about the kingdom. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's called the kingdom of Christ. But my parables are about the kingdom. Now here we are in the United Kingdom. England's a kingdom. Scotland's a kingdom. Northern Ireland's the remains of a kingdom. And Wales is a principality. And our kingdom, kingdom, part of a kingdom and principality are ruled over by a queen. Kingdom is a place which is ruled over by a, a sovereign, normally a king, sometimes a queen. There are people who are ruled and, at least in theory, protected by a king. You can find the United Kingdom on a map. You can't find the kingdom of God on a map. Not any map. There's no part of the world which is more the kingdom of God than any other part of the world. It's not that sort of kingdom. Jesus said to us, my kingdom is not of this world. So there's a kingdom, a kingdom, a kingdom, a kingdom, 
kingdom of Denmark, the kingdom of Norway, the kingdom of this, the kingdom of that. But my kingdom is not of this world. You won't find it in an atlas. You won't find it on a map. You won't find it on a globe. What sort of kingdom is it then? Jesus says, my kingdom is within you. Or, my kingdom is inside you. It's a spiritual kingdom. So whatever country of the world you go into, there are about 200 of them, you will find men and women and young people who are ruled by the king of kings. They live under the government of Christ. They live under the protection of Christ. They enjoy the privileges which come from Christ, but they are a spiritual kingdom and they are ruled in a spiritual way. It's a kingdom inside their heart. And the parable, all the parables, especially this parable, are all about the kingdom. Now, if you're coming into the United Kingdom, how do you get in? So you're coming from France. You cross the channel under it or over it. You arrive in let's say Dover, and you pass through a border. Sometimes you pass through the border the other side, but we won't go into that tonight. You go, you come into a, a physical kingdom by passing through a physical border. How do you get into a spiritual kingdom? If you go back in your Bible just a couple of pages into Mark chapter 1, you'll find the answer. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14. How do you get into a spiritual kingdom? Now after John, John the Baptist, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You come into a physical kingdom by crossing a physical border. You come into a spiritual kingdom by crossing a spiritual border. To come into a physical kingdom, you've got to move physically. To come into a spiritual kingdom, you've got to move spiritually. You have to repent. We don't use the word repent very often. It simply means, in ordinary English, a change of mind a change of attitude. I spent years neglecting Jesus Christ, as many of you did. Then my mind changed. Started looking out, looking, looking, looking for him. Spent years neglecting spiritual things. Then my mind changed. I could see the importance of them. Spent years not worrying about my sin. Then my mind changed. I could see that sin would send me to hell and actually already was sending me to hell. It's a change of mind. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's a message there to be believed, embraced, relied on, loved, treasured, valued, lived by. The gospel is about God. So we change our mind. And I believe what God has to say and who God is and what he's like as he's revealed himself. 
The gospel is about God's requirements. And I haven't kept them because the supreme requirement is that I love him. And I haven't. And I love others like I love myself. And I don't. And the gospel is about Jesus. Who, being the eternal son of God, became man. And so was and continues to be God and man. In two distinct natures. And one person forever. Nobody liked that. But the gospel tells me about him. God lived where we live. God, as man, was tempted where we're tempted. God, as man, didn't fail where we failed. God, as man, died for us. God, as man, rose from the dead, never to die again. He went into the river of death, but he came out the other side, never go through it again. God, as man, has come to save us, rescue us, deliver us, have us. He's come to be our king, to rule us, protect us, love us, defend us, so that we always belong to him. And he never casts us away. And this parable, says Jesus, is about that kingdom of God. So that, first of all, raises the question in your heart and mine. Am I in? Now, this morning we talked briefly about going into the kingdom. I explained how the antelope went into the ark in one leap. Remember that? And the snail went up, got into the ark, but he, had, he went up pretty slowly up the gangplank. But he dropped in in the end. We don't all come into to Christ at the same speed. We don't all come to Christ in the same way. But we come into the kingdom as we come to Christ. Have you come to Christ? Prayed to Christ? Embraced Christ as he's freely offered to you in the gospel message? Where do you stand in relation to Jesus Christ? That's the question. Because that's what the parable is about. It's about the kingdom of God. So the parable calls us to think. The second thing which the parable calls us to do is work. How does the kingdom of God extend? How does any kingdom extend? Well, the British Empire was the largest empire that the world has ever seen. Isn't now, is it? How did the British Empire extend? Well, it extended by having more and more physical territory. So when I was a boy, we used to look at the globe and we would say, look, there's red on every part of the globe. There's red on every page of the atlas. Isn't the British Empire wonderful? Isn't it great to be a Brit? Do you talk like that now? Not very often. Not unless you're nostalgic. But you 
extend the territory. How does the kingdom of God extend? Because one person comes under God's government, another person comes under his rule, another person comes under his rule, and another. How? How? Jesus gives you the answer. Look at verse 3. Behold, a sower went out to sow. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. And everybody sitting there on that beach would have had a picture in their mind. Everyone. They knew all about sowers. It's hard work, you know, in first century Palestine being a sower. But there'll be no harvest without the hard work. What do you have to do? Well, first of all, you plan. We ploughed that field and had a harvest there last year, so we can't use that field this year for that. You plan which fields you're going to sow. Then you plough. No tractors, remember? Just a donkey or a mule, maybe an ox, pulling along just a single ploughshare, a single blade. It takes ages and ages, and it's hard work trudging up and down that field behind that animal, resting it, coaxing it, ordering it, commanding it, just to make a single furrow. Just to do a field takes days and the sun is beating down and you're weary and dehydrated and discouraged but you've just got to go on and you're only just beginning. When all the ploughing is done, then there's the heavy duty work of going up and down the field and pulling out the big rocks and carrying them to the edge of the field. Days more of work. And then when that's done, you come with your hoe and you break up the clumps of soil so that there are no great big lumps of earth, but everything is broken down into dust. A week or two now has gone by and we've only doing one field. Now you've got to get the seed there. How do you get the seed there? This isn't a day of lorries and trucks. This is a day of sacks and trailers, and heavy loads. And then when the seed is on the side of the field, how do you get it into the furrows? Well, you fill up a little bag, and you walk, and you scatter the seed, and you go back, and you fill up a little bag, and you walk a bit more and scatter the seed, and you're aching, and sometimes weeping, and hungry, and cut, and tired, and fed up, and it's got to go on. Otherwise, there'll be no harvest. And Jesus says, when the kingdom of God extends, it extends by that sort of human effort, that sort of hard work. It's hard work sowing the seed. And you know this, if you're a farmer, you will scatter millions of seeds of which several million will never grow 
Because although you can scatter the seed, you cannot make one single seed grow. But you know that if you don't scatter seed, you'll never have a harvest. So you sow and you sow full well knowing that there's something you can't do. There's something only God can do. I used to like this experiment when I was a kid. Put seeds on blotting paper. You younger people, if you don't know what blotting paper is, I'll have to explain that afterwards. But it goes wet and stays wet quite a while. And you put a seed on, the, on blotting paper until it begins to germinate. Ah, here comes the root. Now here's the mischievous bit. You turn the seed up so that the root now is on the top. And do you know what happens? It turns around and goes down. Ah, here comes the shoot. You turn the seed so the shoot's now on the bottom. And do you know what happens? It turns around and goes upwards. It's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely startling. It's a miracle, you know. If you sow wheat, what grows? Wheat. If you sow barley, what grows? Barley. Jesus is explaining to us what conversion is. You sow the seed and then in certain hearts, in certain lives, the seed reproduces itself. So the preacher talks about repentance. It's a Bible word. It's straight out of the word of God. And then a person here and a person there repents. And that seed comes alive in a human. And the person changes their mind about Jesus Christ. And the preacher says, believe. And it's a Bible word. Comes straight off the pages of the word of God. But as the preacher says, believe. Person here person there and a person there entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ they believe and that seed is reproducing itself in a human life that's what conversion is but I can't bring it about and you can't bring it about we can sow the seed we can sow more seed but only God can make it germinate, which is why the apostles said, we will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We won't just give ourselves to the ministry of the word. We will give ourselves to prayer because otherwise, if this miracle does not take place inside a human heart, then there'll be no harvest. There'll be no harvest if we don't sow seed. But if we do sow seed and God doesn't make it germinate, there'll still be no harvest. This is all taught in the parable. So what should we be concentrating our human effort on? 
we should be concentrating our human effort on sowing seed. There's a lot of talk today about apologetics. Some of you have never heard the word, so I'll explain. Apologetics is talking to non-Christians and explaining to them that there are good reasons for believing the Christian faith and giving them those good reasons. But listen, nobody ever, ever has been converted through apologetics. All apologetics will ever do is bring people to the point where they might be willing to listen to the message of the Bible. But the apologetics won't convert them. Preachers should be emotional. They should plead. But pleading doesn't convert anybody. If God is not doing something inside the heart of the reader of the Bible, inside the heart of the person who's listening to a sermon, inside the heart of someone who's coming into contact with the gospel, if God does not do something, there will be no harvest. But we still have to sow the seed and our efforts should be spent in praying for God's blessing and in making sure we're getting the scriptural message of the gospel out to men and women as far as possible. So Jesus says through his parable, think, work. What happens when we sow the seed? That brings us to our third point. Come with me now to verses 13 onwards. Sorry, Mark chapter 4, verse 13 onwards. Think, work, weep. Verse 14. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So Mary's a Sunday school teacher. She loves the kids she teaches. She prays for them. She does things with them. She knows their parents. She visits their homes. Sometimes they come to her home. She prepares a lesson and she starts her lesson by saying to the, the children under her care, do you know, can you remember what we learned last week? And the answer is nothing. How does Mary feel? A man knocked at my door once, our door. You'll have to help me, he said, because if you don't, I shall be dead before the weekend's over. I said, what's the problem? This, he said, and he held up half a bottle of whiskey. You better come to my house, he said, because there's something you can do and I can't. I said, what is it? He said, I've got lots and lots of bottles of whiskey. And if you don't pour them down the sink, I'll be dead before Monday. So I went to his house. Can you believe it? In the dingle here. Unscrewed all the caps on these bottles of whiskey and poured the whole lot down the sink. Nearly drunk myself by the time I'd, just from the sheer odour of it all. And he thanked me profusely. And he sat down and said, please talk to me. And I said, right. The first thing you need to know is it doesn't have to be like this. And I talked to him about Jesus Christ and his transforming power. And he said it was wonderful. 
went many times, spoke to him again afterwards. He never had any recollection ever of that first conversation. How does that make you feel? Jesus warned us about it. There's a lot of heavy hearts, you know, in Christian work. There's every Sunday school teacher, every Bible class teacher, every preacher, and everybody, anybody who's ever spoken to somebody else about Jesus Christ knows there's a lot of disappointment, there's a lot of setbacks, there's a lot of tears, there's a lot of inward aching, and there's worse than that. Now then, look at verse 16. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterwards, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. We used to have quite a long lunchtime when I was at school, because there were two sittings. Our school was in several buildings, all scattered around the city of Chester. So we had quite a lot of time to do, just mooching, as we would say, around Chester. And one of my best friends said to me, he said, well, what is this Christianity that you believe? I said, well, it's a cold day. I said, let's get somewhere where it's a bit warm. So we went into Chester Cathedral. It's not the warmest building in the world, is it? if you've ever been there, but there is a corner where there's a very, very big heater, and I mean a very big heater, eight or ten feet wide, and we sat by this heater. He says, well, come on then, what is it really that you believe? So I told him, and he said, I think that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. I think, I, think I want to become a Christian. To church he came, to YL, he came on Saturday night, meeting for Christian young people. To the prayer meeting he came. To the school Christian union he came. He was all on fire. Every day we would get together and he would say, I've got questions, questions on the, on the Bible. And he would ask them. And as often as not, I didn't know the answer, so I had to go and look it up. But it, it, it was terrific. Um, but then one weekend he, he wasn't there. And not on Saturday, not on Sunday. And then less and less and hardly at all and then not at all. And I said, what's up? What's up? He says, you didn't tell me it'd be like this. I said, what do you mean? He says, do you know that since I've owned up to being a Christian, a lot of people are treating me differently. This folk here, in our class even, who are avoiding me. And from that day to this day, he's not shown that much interest in the things of God at all. I was a young Christian. How did I feel? How would you have felt? There's worse to come. Look now then at verse 18. These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, the desires for other things, the desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, 
and it becomes unfruitful. Before I ever came to Belvedere, in there in Poplar Baptist Church, a fellow came into the evening service. He was about 18 or 19, never been to church before. Within three or four weeks, he said to me, I've been converted. I thought, this is fantastic. He duly met up with the church officers, baptised, came into the membership. Oh boy, he was keen. A bit too keen, actually, because I, at that stage in my life, lived in a flat on the first floor, and this young man was a very rather late going to bed, but he wouldn't normally go to bed until he'd come along the street, stood underneath my bedroom window and sung a hymn or two. It's not really always what you want. But he was completely unashamed, it seemed. He started reading Christian books, big books. He had a, a good library of big, solid books, many of which he had read. I thought to myself, I wonder if he's going to be a missionary or a, or a minister. But he got tired of it. We lost him. He spent a year or two with this hobby. He got tired of it. He went on to another something else. Spent a year or two or three on that. And then eventually we lost contact with him. Why? He always had the desire for something else other than where he was. I don't know if he's even still alive. I wonder if he's changed. But when you meet someone who's as encouraging as that and seems to be growing in the Christian faith and then it all comes to nothing, how do you feel? Can I travel with you? A man said to me one day, I hear you're going to such and such a town and you're giving a seminar on preaching and I've started to preach and I'd like to travel with you because I said, well, it's two and a half hours. I know that, he says, that's why I want to travel with you. I can talk to you for two and a half hours, we can have the seminar, then I can talk to you for two and a half hours more and we'll get five hours. Anyway, you do a lot of things for the gospel's sake. So I said, yes, of course. So he asked questions about preaching for two and a half hours, then we had a, se a seminar on preaching for an hour and a half or so, and then he had two and a half more hours asking about preaching, and eventually he became a minister. And eventually by a whole strange turn of circumstances, he became my minister. He's one of the best read men I've ever met. Extremely sharp theologically. Could never pull the wool over his eyes. Theology, as you know, what the Bible teaches about God, is built on very fine distinctions. And he could make those fine distinctions without any trouble at all. He was one of the most gifted men I think I've ever met. What I didn't know, and what nobody can know, is that while all these good things were growing in his life, something else was growing in his life, which eventually became bigger. These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke 
the word and it becomes unfruitful. Where is he today? Well, I can tell you the town. But where is he today? He has no interest at all in anything except his computer business. If Jesus hadn't have warned us about this, we would be driven to despair. Because almost everything we do is a waste of time. With some people, the gospel makes no impression. With others, it makes a good impression, but they soon drop it. With others, it makes a lasting impression, but in the end, they walk away. So the parable calls us to think, to work, and to weep. But, starts verse 20, but, these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. Think of it. One little grain into the ground, it grows, the shoot goes up, the stalk, the ear, nothing's choking it, and in the ear, 30 from one, 60 from one, 100 from one. And by the way, in modern agriculture, 3,000 sometimes from one. Great, isn't it? Most of what we do is a complete waste of time. But if we sow the seed, if we sow the seed, if we sow the seed, if we pray that God will do what only God can do and make it germinate and keep it germinating and growing and strengthening, there will be conversions. There won't be without sowing. There will be with sowing. So we think and we work and we weep and we dance. It's a great thing, isn't it, when someone says, I've come to Christ. But it shows you also that there's more joys in Christian work than soul winning. Because what is growing in grace? What is becoming a stronger Christian? What actually is it? It's that little seed which reproduces itself. But in some people, it reproduces itself with great effect. And in others, it reproduces itself with greater effect. And in a few, it reproduces itself in a very great effect. So there are more joys to Christian work than soul winning. 
because as we sow the seed, we will see not only conversions, but we will also see the development of eminent Christians. He was 10 when I met him, and he was dirty. And he came from a total, totally dysfunctional family, heartbreaking family. I said to him, what, what do you do with yourself in the evening? And he told me. I said, oh, you don't want to be doing that. He said, you know where the chapel is? I said, go there on a Tuesday night and at least go to that. And he did. Every week. There was a couple in the chapel who, after he'd been there a year or so, said, have you ever been on holiday? He said, no, not ever. We'll arrange it, they said. And he went off with some other young people to a Christian holiday. He came to Christ. He became a pure, manly, unashamed, rugby-playing <laughs> teenager. He became a qualified honest, reliable, much sought after tradesman. He became and remains an exemplary, powerful, gospel minister. And how do you think I feel? Why don't you go down to that chapel on a Tuesday night? That's all I said. But there, the seed was sown, the seed grew, and it reproduced itself 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And there are many, and I mean many, in the kingdom of God today because of him. Almost everything we do is a waste of time. But not everything. So we think, we work, we weep, and we dance. <laughs>